Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. What is a birthday party without a cake? <laughs> a meeting. <laughs> Gosh. I'm Christopher Hope the Telegraph's associate editor. And this is Chopper's Politics. Well, it's D-Day, a.k.a. decision time for Tory MPs this weekend. Time to decide if they will back Boris Johnson, even if Sue Gray, Whitehall's party finder-in-chief, doesn't. And while at one point this week, it wasn't looking rosy for the Prime Minister, the vultures aren't circling quite just yet in Whitehall. There are reports of around 100 Tory MPs vowing to support Boris Johnson. The guard hounds in Operation Save Big Dog, if you will. But where are the rest? So I invited a close friend of Boris Johnson, Connor Burns, a Northern Ireland minister to the Red Lion pub, to ask him just that. And you may have heard his voice already this week. He was, in a sense, ambushed with a cake. (laughs) So we pulled up a chair at my favourite table in the Red Lion pub, a stone's throw from 10 Downing Street. Connor Burns, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Delighted to be here. I'm going to ambush you with a Chopper's Politics mug. <laughs> Thank you. It's much better than being ambushed by cake. Um, how is the PM? He's in good form. He is uh, busy getting on with the, the job. During the week, you saw him in the House of Commons making a statement on the, the perilous situation uh, in the Russia-Ukraine mm-hmm. border. And, and I think that was a great reminder to colleagues of the, the importance of the job that he's doing. Mm. And he was making sure that Britain's voice, the United Kingdom's voice, is very much being heard as the, the alliance allies formulate their response to a potential Russian aggression mm. uh, in Ukraine. But given all that, and that is really serious, big stuff that any prime minister must deal with, how much time is he devoting to party gate and cakes? Well, his absolute focus is doing the job of prime minister. On, on Monday, for example, I went to Deluck to read the draft of the levelling up white paper, which is, is imminent, uh, and that's going to be one of the defining causes of, of Boris's premiership. Uh, it was the central plank of the 2019 manifesto, for which he won a deeply personal mandate from the British people. Look, obviously he's engaging with colleagues, and we're in a difficult period. It'd be nonsense to deny that. But his engagement with colleagues is, is probably not that much greater than it would be on, a, on an average week. How will he get through this? He'll get through it by showing the party, 
the public, the country, that he has uh, an undimmed spirit for delivering on that amazing majority that he won in 2019, the biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher in 1987, uh, and I say genuinely a very personal mandate for him. That was very much a Boris Johnson mandate uh, as opposed to a Conservative Party mandate. And many of my friends and colleagues in the Parliamentary Party are sitting on those green benches behind him because of him. Does he, does he blame himself for this current uh, scrape he's in? Look, I think it's absolutely true that the Prime Minister regrets elements of what's happened. He's, he made that clear when he came to Prime Minister's Question Time two weeks ago. He said, you know, in retrospect, he wishes he'd ordered everyone inside. But one, one of the great things about, about the Prime Minister is that he, he isn't retrospective. He's always looked to what next rather than what if. Just a characteristically optimistic, uh, positive politician. And I think he is, you know, he is yearning for the opportunity to draw a line on this, which he believes the, the, the Sue Gray inquiry and the Met inquiry will deliver, and to get back 100% to focusing on delivering for the public, to showing the British people what difference it makes to their lives, their communities, in every corner, every region, every nation in the United Kingdom, having him in Downing Street makes. We'll come on to that, though, but briefly, something called Operation Save Big Dog emerged in the weekend papers last weekend. Do you recognise that term? I've never heard that term, except in the media. (laughs) Um, There is you know, obviously a, a determination amongst many colleagues to support the Prime Minister at this time, uh, to help him to remind the Parliamentary Party of why he was, is, and I would argue remains such a, a, a popular, appealing politician, and how uniquely he has rejuvenated a party that has been in power for 12 years. He's reassembled the old gang who got him elected back in 2019, Chris Pinch and Nigel Adams and others. Um, th- there's talk of uh, as many as 100 on, on a WhatsApp support group for him. Do you meet at 9am each morning, apparently, in, in, in an office? Well, I, I read lots of stuff in, in the press. What I can tell you is that yeah, there are a number of us who are his friends, uh, who want to help him, who want him to get through this, and who want to make sure that he is able to you know, rebuild the relationship with the British public and lead us confidently, optimistically into the next election. Yeah. There were as many as 17 parties in Whitehall and Number 10. Does he still think that all the rules are followed? I mean, Chris, what he is looking forward to is the, is the, the Sue Gray report. And I, I know Sue well, you know. What's she like? She's feisty. She's uh, funny. She's great company. Do you um, have to go to a pub? I've never been to a pub, no. But her pub was in a, you know, quite a, a feisty part of Northern Ireland. She's unimpeachable integrity, utterly independent, fearless, and she will bring forward her findings. And the Prime Minister is confident that when her report is in the public domain, uh, that he will be able to more than defend uh, what it finds. Do you know what's in it yet? No, none of us know. And it would be utterly... Literally, honestly, I mean, literally, you mean not this at this point? Literally, honestly. Really? Nobody knows what's in it. Nobody at this point knows when it's going to come. We know as much as you do, yep. or as much as anybody listening to this knows. The key question that all this is want to ask is, was he actually ambushed by a cake <laughs> in 10 Downing Street on his birthday? I, I learned a salutary lesson yesterday that you should never make a joke when you're doing a serious broadcast interview. Uh, and I'm told, uh, under some authority, indeed from him, 
there actually wasn't a cake. There was no so, cake. So I must be the first government minister in history who uh, stands accused of cakeism without an actual cake. What is a birthday party without a cake? A meeting. <laughs> Gosh. It struck me that the, the row about a cake was part of a strategy to make it all seem a bit, a bit of a silly row about nothing. Is that unfair? Well, look, I can assure you, Chris, that when I went out and made a bit of a prat of myself on Channel 4 talking about the, the, the cake ambush, I absolutely was not part of a strategy. That was a, a definitely uh, a loan operation <laughs> for which I have paid a price. A colleague said to me this morning, you, you do realise, Connor, that's going to be in your obituary. <laughs> that will stay with me for some time. It will do. But listen, when you, when you do make a little bit of an answer yourself, even inadvertently, the key thing is to own it and not to be pompous about it. Yeah, but it's still a big issue. It's a serious issue, though. Just setting aside the cake discussion, I mean, people were, there are a lot of people out there who are hurting from the pandemic, from hurting not seeing their loved ones, and they're just looking at Whitehall and thinking, why weren't they following the rules we were following? So, look, I, I completely and totally understand that, and the Prime Minister understands that too. One of my aunts died during the pandemic, not of, not of COVID. Her family had to watch her die through a sort of perspex screen. A, a very good friend of mine, one of my predecessors, John Eden, died at the height of the pandemic. Uh, and was in touch with me actually just after I'd resigned and saying, you know, come and see me. But it was against the rules and I didn't. So I don't for one second diminish the hurt that the people feel, how difficult those rules were, and precious time that people will never get back. I mean, the Prime Minister, I think, understands that more than most. He went to hospital with this. He was seriously, seriously ill with this. The day after his own mum died, he was chairing a cabinet meeting. So I, I just genuinely think that when you when you step back from it and you look at how the Prime Minister uh, has made the right judgment calls throughout this pandemic, uh, he has done overwhelmingly the right thing for the British people. I mean, just look at the vaccine plan. You know, we weren't even sure if they'd work. That was a, an enormous judgment call the Prime Minister made. He, he's met with Sue Gray. He, how, did you know how long his interview was, was with her? I've no idea. I, I have literally not discussed the, the Sue Gray a report with the PM that would be no. inappropriate. Is he getting legal, legal advice? Do you know? I honestly don't know. I haven't seen, hasn't seen the police yet, as far as you know. Not as far as I know. His leadership. You mentioned that you've actually read the Leveling Up White Paper, which is interesting. So it, it does exist. Is out next week. I'm not exactly certain on on the timings of it. Ministers were invited to go and take a look at it before its it, its final production. I was obviously very interested to know how it impacts Northern Ireland. You know, I so that's a, your day job. I still have a day job. Northern Ireland Minister. Um, and Northern Ireland, put, put it this way, if Northern Ireland had the same level of productivity as the rest of the UK, if it didn't have the largest number of adults with no qualifications, if it didn't have the largest number of economically inactive adults, if we could get Northern Ireland just to the UK average, we'd be talking about a, a bounce for the, the Treasury in the region of 15, 16 billion. So I was very interested to see how because the Prime Minister is very clear, levelling up is not about North-South. It's about every community in every region, in every nation of our United Kingdom. You know, we, we talk about cakes and parties and events and so on. This is the mission of this Prime Minister. You know, when, when he used to tell colleagues that he wanted to do for the whole of the UK what he did for London as mayor. This is, this is the driving agenda. This is the defining mission of Boris Johnson's premiership. And if it continues, he'll, he'll deliver on it. How many letters of no confidence have gone in, do you think? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think the history of letters um, is that, you know, 
if Royal Mail were dependent on Tory MPs for profitability, they'd go bust. <laughs> um, letters are very easy to talk about. They actually are quite much harder to deliver. It's emotional to put them in, I think. And as you go back to your first point, he was the reason many of these MPs were elected in the first place. So it's quite a moment for them to put it in. Yeah, letter I, and look, I mean, colleagues, I think, have seen, they've witnessed, they've looked at the Prime Minister in the last two sets of PMQs. They looked at him in the Ukraine statement. This is not a bloke who is about to willingly surrender the seals of office. This is a guy with an agenda and a purpose and a mission. And he is itching to get on with it. Do you understand why some of them have lost confidence in him? Of course I do. Uh, and I think that you know, all of us in politics would do well to remember the history of politics. In 1981, Mrs Thatcher was, I think, 20% in the polls at one point. She won a landslide of 144 in 83. In 1986, we had the, the Westland affair. Again, the Tory party were way behind the polls. Mrs Thatcher won a majority of 102 in a year later in 1987. Even as recently as 2012, you know, we were 10 points behind Labour under David Cameron, who then went on to win a majority at the, at the next election. I remember, I think I said it in the House of Commons when, when Lady Thatcher died, I remember showing her the Sunday Telegraph front page, and I think there was a poll that showed we were 10 or 12 points behind on a Sunday evening, and she asked me when the next election was, and I said, well, it's a little, like, two and a half years. And her reply was, that's not far enough behind at this stage. <laughs> yes. It's the nature of midterm that you fall behind. But the essence of good government is to take the tough decisions to get the long-term prosperity of the country right. And the Prime Minister will be judged at the next election, not on what's happened in the next two weeks. They'll be judged on what's happened over the four or five years, and that he will be judged on his agenda for the next Parliament. Are you disappointed that it's taken an old friend like you, rather than cabinet ministers, to come out in, in, in his support? There's lots of talk about Rishi Sunak not being around in PMQs last week. This week he was sitting away from the PM, so it wasn't clipped on the evening bulletins. Why does it take old friends to step up, not the actual colleagues in the Cabinet? Well, I've seen a lot of, of Cabinet uh, ministers out defending the Prime Minister. Not, not Rishi Sunak, not the Chancellor. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that, yeah, that being Chancellor is a pretty big job, um, We've gone through a very, very difficult time. You know, we've put nearly 400 billion behind furlough and support for business and individuals. Um, the Chancellor is getting on with the job of being Chancellor. I'm accountable for what I do. I wanted to get out there and, and support my friend, my leader, uh, my Prime Minister, uh, as do many colleagues. Uh, I'm far from being alone. But not there. all, not all. And I think that's quite interesting. We've tried to get out there and help. And that's all I've tried to do. I believed, Chris, you know, when, when, and I have an enormous regard for it, but I believed that when uh, Theresa May was Prime Minister that we were in a really difficult position, perilous, existential threat to, to the party. Over Brexit. Over Brexit. And I believed that only Boris Johnson could get us out of that hole, could deliver Brexit, could win a general election. That judgment, I think, was absolutely validated by his thunderous victory in December 2019, and I believe then, and I believe now, that he is the right person to lead the United Kingdom at this moment in our history. Has he got a fight-back plan developed now? You mentioned levelling up white paper. Is there a speech planned? Will he plan to do weekly meetings with voters to, to show the real Boris? Margaret Thatcher once said to me that the problem with Tony Blair was that he thought when he'd made a speech, something had happened, <laughs> and the only thing that had happened is he'd made a speech. <laughs> I think the, 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 the answer to the challenge that the party and the government faces isn't in a metaphorical silver bullet. 
It is in a period of calm, consistent delivery on that manifesto for which he won that enormous personal mandate. That's what I think the country want to see. I think there is a sense that the country have sort of almost had enough of this, um, and they want to see the government. They want to see change. They want to see change. They want to see grip. All of his friends tell me they want to see a team around him. Maybe you're one of them, other people, people around him who can look after and make sure he doesn't go off, off the uh, too far off the straight and narrow. It happened successfully in City Hall, different, completely different setup. But they want to see a, a new setup in number 10 Downing Street. Is that coming? We all want to help him. Um, he's given me the, the enormous honour of serving the place of my birth in Northern Ireland as Minister of State. I want to get on with that. I will do whatever the Prime Minister asks me to do in service of him uh, and the country that I'm so proud to be a part of. The Prime Minister is listening very carefully to the the various messages that are being given to him uh, from colleagues. And I've no doubt that when when we move on from this, the Prime Minister will want to make sure that the, the machinery of government is absolutely geared and engineered to delivering the fruits of that 2019 manifesto. Which suggests it hasn't been recently, it's been a bit dysfunctional. But I guess the, the pandemic has had a, had a, had a it's, it's put a stress on the system. He certainly did not seek or ask for the pandemic to be thrown into his lap six months or so after winning, or less than six months after winning that uh, general election. And clearly, look, obviously the focus of, of the whole machinery government has been on the pandemic, on PPE, on vaccine, on the NHS, on protecting the public. And it is right that as we emerge from that, and today's the day, is it not that the the final restrictions sort of fall away? As that goes into the rearview mirror and we learn to live with COVID, uh, it is right that the, the, the machinery of government and the Prime Minister have a rededication, a renewal of focus on how we deliver for the British people. Isn't the problem is you have to learn to trust people more? and trust people to look after his best interests. That's the problem at the moment. That's a challenge for every Prime Minister. Being Prime Minister is a very lonely job. Um, and Mr Thatcher once said to me, you know, unless you've done it, you've no idea how lonely it actually is. You've got lots of advisors, you've got lots of information sources, you've got lots of uh, conflicting suggestions. But at the end of the day, as Prime Minister, you've got to own your decisions, you've got to live with them, and you've got to justify them. So I would be very loath to, having known a couple of prime ministers pretty well, uh, I'd be very loath to to add to the, the burden of advice. And just finally, just, just you and me talking now, uh, what, what are his odds of surviving? Uh, listen, I think not only is he going to survive, he's going to thrive. There was a, a headline the day after Margaret Thatcher resigned, the Daily Express, a picture of her standing outside number 10 with a huge bouquet of flowers. And it was the day after her amazing no-confidence motion speech. And the headline was simply, what have they done? I think there was a sense in the parliamentary party over the last 10 days, what are we doing? And I think colleagues have pulled back. So I think he will get through this. I think he will rededicate himself to delivering for the British people. And I am absolutely confident, Chris, that not only will he lead us into the next general election, he will win the next general election handsomely for the Conservative Party and for the United Kingdom. Well, Conor Burns, a close friend of Boris Johnson, Northern Ireland Minister of State, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Conor Burns there. With an interesting heart back to the end of Margaret Thatcher's time in 10 Downing Street. And this week, another Tory MP making comparisons between the two Prime Ministers, 
Sir John Redwood, MP for Wokingham and head of Thatcher's policy unit in the mid-1980s. Sir John wrote a piece in Conservative Home about what Boris Johnson could learn from the Iron Lady. So I asked the former Welsh Secretary to join me down the line from his seat in Wokingham for this week's Chopper's Politics. Thank you very much. Now, you wrote a really good piece, uh, Sir John, didn't you, for Conservative Home about your time running the policy unit for Margaret Thatcher. And you drew out some lessons for Boris Johnson, which I thought were really interesting. Yes, well, as a very young man, I got a great opportunity to actually run the policy unit as one of the three senior officials in Number 10, assisting Prime Minister Thatcher. And so I thought it might be helpful at this juncture where there is a lot of discussion about what is the best model for running Number 10 to set out how we did it. Because the one nice thing I remember Margaret saying when I moved on from running her policy unit was, you know, John, what's been good is we've got a lot done. (laughs) We defined ourselves as we were as a civil service unit. We worked in close collaboration with cabinet ministers, Whitehall departments and the regular civil service. I had some uh, civil servants who were career civil servants in my unit. We worked very closely with the principal private secretary and his little team. Uh, who ensured due process and proper interaction with all the machinery of government. Uh, And uh, Bernard Ingham was the press spokesman. So between the three of us, we knew the Prime Minister's mind. We saw her on a very regular basis. We put things to her, offered her advice in private uh, and took away what her conclusions were when she reached them. And so the rest of Whitehall knew they could trust us and they knew that It wasn't the John Redwood view going out to Whitehall that I was regaling. Uh, It was the Margaret Thatcher view. So I think what my takeaway from it is a successful prime minister needs to trust just a handful of people who are completely loyal, who will give strong and independent advice to them in private, but will speak for them and make sure the government carries through the high level strategy that the prime minister and senior colleagues wish to see carried through. Uh, because she she or he has got a small team of people completely dedicated to it and who know her and the Cabinet's wishes. The other very important thing I always insisted on was that we did observe due process with Cabinet members and departments, that Number 10 must be strategic, it must do the high-level responses and the longer-term policies with Cabinet agreement, and it should leave an awful lot of the detail and implementation to Cabinet members who have the backing of very large departments to do that, Whereas number 10, it is not an implementation area. It doesn't have a big staff to actually carry through the agreed policies. It strikes me from what you're saying there that what then worked and what we maybe needed needed now is that everybody had clear roles, clear lines of accountability. You all knew what you were doing. You were pretty clear. And you also had a direct route into the principal, the prime minister. You also put on the wall almost some key tenets of what became Thatcherism, which is issues of taxation and the rest. And then those were your lodestars that you worked towards in everything you did, and that gave you clarity. That's right. We we, um, helped the Prime Minister define the the crucial themes and aims of the administration. Some of them were derived directly from the manifesto. Some of them emerged during the, the Parliament. They were all, of course, cleared through the cabinet and where they involved detailed working by one or two special departments. Then uh, we ensured bilaterals. We ensured that the cabinet members concerned were were happy with the general remit, that they had the resources they needed to carry out the tasks, that where there were disagreements, and of course there were disagreements, uh, we tried to get them hammered out in private between the principal 
participants, the cabinet members and their prime minister, in an orderly and private way. Well, when, when were you appointed to run the policy unit? Was it a few years into the Thatcher administration or was it in 1979? Just after the first election victory to be re-elected. And in 1983, she, she returned as Prime Minister with a much-enhanced majority. She'd beaten a weak and unpopular Labour Party. Uh, and the interest for me was intensified because the manifesto hadn't said a great deal. It didn't need to say a great deal. And so we, we started with a, a blanker piece of paper than usual and thought, well, there's this huge majority. There are lots of changes we need to better the lives of British people, to create more jobs, to create more prosperity. And she particularly liked a set of ideas uh, about widening ownership, widening opportunity, helping more people to become homeowners, helping more people to set up their own businesses, helping the development of small business uh, and taking measures that would strengthen right. British business generally, which was very necessary because unemployment was high and we were recovering from a devastatingly high inherited inflation. Uh, and so that was how we advanced and that created a huge amount of work for Everybody from Social Security Secretary needing to do pension social security reform through to the Treasury needing lower taxes and better context for business through to the business department uh, needing to have a series of policies that promoted the growth of many more new businesses and smaller businesses through to the employment department, getting rid of some of the barriers to new jobs and to help people with training and retraining so that they could have better experience in life. So yes, it was an exciting time where a lot of imaginative work could be done uh, and uh, cabinet members were trusted to get on with it once we defined the strategy. The key word there is trust, isn't it? I mean, you look now into Boris Johnson's uh, inner circle, there appears to be an absence of trust of key advisers like yourself who can be trusted to get on with it. And is that, does that go back to the central point um, that in 2019 people were voting for Boris Johnson more than the Conservative Party. And so because there's some opaqueness about what Johnson actually believes in half the time, that means it's very hard for advisor to work out what he wants to do. And that's why you see this drift to the heart of government. Well, I think maybe there are too many advisers and maybe they get too involved in the day-to-day and the immediate crises. And, and in fairness to them, uh, they've had the, the COVID pandemic hit just after they won the general election. And so all bets were off and they had to have a period of a year or more when... Fighting the pandemic was was the main task, which hadn't been foreseen. But I mean, the good news, uh, which I communicated to Prime Minister at the beginning of this period in office, when he asked me a bit about what we had done and how we'd done it with Margaret Thatcher, uh, was to say, well, you've got a pretty clear manifesto. Uh, the manifesto says don't put taxes up. The manifesto says we want to level up the country. We want to create those better opportunities for people. And for places all around the country, we, we want better pay, we want more interesting jobs, we want more training, uh, we wish to have more business activity. This is a great agenda. And so, in a way, your aim is set. It's, it's levelling up, it's greater prosperity. Uh, so then your policy unit should be guiding you and helping you, working closely with leading cabinet members on how they can each contribute. How can each department contribute to that? big vision of a, a more prosperous, freer society uh, with levelling up as its main motive. John Redwood, is this position for Boris Johnson salvageable, do you think? Yes, of course. Uh, I want the Prime Minister to fight back and to provide the leadership we're all hoping for. 
I like his optimism. I, I like his wish to get things done, his boosterism. Uh, and that's why I'm saying to him, it's the economy, stupid. Go for it. We don't want this big squeeze in April. We want to get the tax reductions uh, rather than tax increases. We want to get behind people. We want to get more oil and gas out of the North Sea so that we start to ease the squeeze on our energy. Why don't we produce our own instead of importing energy? It's greener to produce at home and it's going to be cheaper and better. And in the meantime, we need to get people over the hurdle of that big shock that will otherwise come from the electricity and gas bills. If they hurl too much extra tax at this economy, it will slow it too much. And far from making it easier to afford the health and social service increases they want, it will make it more difficult. The deficit has come down a long way this year, far more than they thought, because we've had more growth. We've had a bit of boosterism. If they now sandbag the economy from April, they're going to find it much tougher to pay for the health service and keep the deficit down. Well, with that creed occur, John Redwood, former head of Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, with some advice there from the Prime Minister in a, over a big weekend. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. So, John Redwood, thank you. And if you're interested in the fall of Thatcher and possible comparisons to what's happening now, you may be interested in another Telegraph podcast. It's called Eyewitnessed History. And each week, a Telegraph colleague takes you to a moment in history when they were there in the front seat as history was being made. This week, my esteemed colleague, Philip Johnston, tells us what happened when he was in Paris when Mrs Thatcher herself realised she hadn't got enough votes to stop a Tory leadership challenge. It's a great listen. Now, as we've discussed on this podcast, while Westminster's on tenterhooks waiting for this Sue Gray report, there are arguably, in fact, definitely, more important crises afoot largely the situation brewing on the border of Russia and Ukraine. So what better time to call up the Telegraph's Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, to help us make sense of it all. And she was joined this week by Lucy Fisher, the Telegraph's deputy political editor. Hello to you both. Natalia, to you first, give us a simple breakdown. What is actually happening right now between Russia and Ukraine? Well, it's been busy week as it is. And just uh, last night, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow delivered a written response to Russian security demands. This is something that the Kremlin came forward with at the end of last year, essentially urging the United States and NATO to bar Ukraine and any former Soviet Union nations from joining NATO. This has been a much anticipated event, as Moscow has indicated that its security demands is uh, its red line. And unless the West is ready to meet its demands, it will be prepared to use unspecified military means in Ukraine and elsewhere. Just this afternoon, we heard from uh, the Kremlin and top Russian diplomats who said they have received the response. They were encouraged by several positive proposals, as they've put it, but their core demands on uh, uh, for NATO to pull back its troops from Europe still hasn't been met. But they also indicated their willingness to keep on talking, and it looks like there are more uh, talks scheduled in the country. Days. And, and how is the Putin government explaining all this to Russians? Are they seeing the description you're describing, or is it uh, done from a really um, a nationalistic perspective? 
Mm, that's actually a very good point because I think the question we all have been asking ourselves and uh, Russian leadership is why now? What's the rush? Why suddenly, 20 years after the Baltic states were admitted into NATO, why Russia is worried about NATO expansion now? There is no good answer to that and Kremlin officials have been dodging that answer. What they do say from television screens, from state-controlled TV, is uh, the Kremlin leadership has lost its patience. We have reached a boiling point when Russia sees NATO troops amassing along its border, including Ukraine, and uh, the Kremlin sees it as an existential threat. Also, the message that Russian television viewers are fed is that uh, NATO is egging on Kiev to attack Russia-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine, and this is the threat that Russia needs to respond to. Okay, that's the view from Russia. Uh, Lucy Fisher, here in London, what are the political noises you're hearing? Do you think that the UK might send in troops or get troops involved somehow in a conflict? Well, uh, the UK has been clear that it is extremely unlikely that Britain would send a deployment of combat troops to Ukraine itself. Ukraine is, of course, not a member of NATO. But certainly in the past um, 24 hours, there has been an uptick in in the tempo of conversations um, led by the UK for Britain to send potentially the low hundreds of extra military personnel to the eastern flank of the alliance. That could be soldiers uh, dropped into Hungary, potentially beefing up uh, the the deployment in Poland. Could also be more um, of the Royal Navy stationed in the uh, Black Sea or Baltics. So there are various options that the UK is looking at. And what's clear is that we want to act only with other allies in NATO, um, a coalition of the willing, if you will, that includes the US, it includes Spain, France, Denmark, the Netherlands, and it could be as soon as today or later this week that we hear more on that subject. Natalia, how do you think this might play out? Do you think it's going to be result in sanctions for Russia? And how would Putin react to that? He obviously holds a lot of um, bargaining chips over the energy issue, doesn't he? Yes, well, obviously, it depends what Russia uh, does end up doing, because from what we've heard from President Biden, for example, he clearly distinguished between, as he put it, a a small incursion and this large-scale invasion. The U.S. has already laid out its sanctions, what it could do. Options include anything from uh, banning Russian banks from trading into dollar, from slapping top Russian politicians with visa bans, including Vladimir Putin. If we speak about economic sanctions, I think it's important to say that Russia has been working really hard in the past eight years since uh, it was first faced with sanctions to make it economy, as some people put it, uh, sanctions proof. Russia has been shoring up its public finances. It has been saving up. For example, Russia's rainy day fund and its international reserves and foreign currency are now significantly bigger than what they were in 2014. Russia has also developed its own payment system to uh, rival Visa and MasterCard. Definitely, you know, if we look at the sanctions and from the rhetoric uh, from the Kremlin that we've, we've heard, that this doesn't look like something that could deter Putin from what he's doing. And obviously, the uh, thing that could hurt Russia most would be banning Russian gas, oil and gas exports. And there's definitely not, I, we definitely don't see any appetite in Europe for doing that. Lucy Fisher, back in London, do you see this maybe as the first big post-Brexit test? I mean, is the UK being listened to or now we're outside of the European Union? 
is it, is it the case that we're more of a kind of bystander? I know we have a big role to play in NATO, but we're not part of that trading bloc, the EU trading bloc, which could be so important in any sanctions regime. I think it's a really interesting question, Chris, and I think we are playing a very big convening role in this particular crisis, but there are special circumstances that define uh, in, in part why that is. The first is that France is obviously facing a presidential election in April that mean President Macron is more tied up with domestic politics than he might ordinarily be or the, the president of France might ordinarily be. And of course, Germany has only just put together its new coalition under Olaf Scholz, which is finding its feet. Germany also has the uh, additional issue when it comes to Russia of Nord Stream 2, the new gas pipeline that, of course, um, lands uh, in in Germany, bypassing Ukraine. So Germany has conflicting interests there with perhaps um, this uh, this promise of gas that's going to come through the pipeline. But I have been interested that although even in the UK, a lot of our press is completely understandably been focused on the Partygate scandal and the precariousness of Boris Johnson's leadership, Ben Wallace and Liz Truss have been doing um, quite a big job of rallying European partners to try and um, step up a coalition of the willing to do more on the eastern flanks of NATO. Ben Wallace on Thursday is um, undertaking this diplomatic blitz of Europe, meeting with counterparts to see what more they're willing to do, whether that's send more troops or perhaps send more weapons direct to Ukraine, be involved in any particular way. So I think it has been interesting to see um, how Britain has stepped up. But it may not be the case that some of the other big players in Europe are always as distracted as they are at this moment in time. And talking of distractions, Lisa Fisher, without sounding crass to the levity of what we're discussing, this kind of huge foreign policy crisis could be maybe what Boris Johnson needs right now domestically. It may unite his party's MPs behind him as he seeks to show united front towards Russia. Well, that's right. And that's a, a point made um, by James Gray, one of his backbenchers, made the point that Vladimir Putin might actually help save Boris Johnson in a counterintuitive way. We know that the Falklands helped turn around Thatcher's image when she took a very um, robust stance. It is that contrast that could be helpful to Boris Johnson, the slightly trivial nature of kind of arguing about cakes and birthday parties and so on, when one is confronted with images on the six and 10 o'clock news of people dying, of the real life and death situation, that is all out war, if indeed Russia does invade. But I think at the moment, there's also a flip side to that question, which is, you know, is Boris Johnson, is Downing Street functioning and giving an appropriate amount of time to this very, very important foreign policy issue? I think the answer is probably not. It seems to me that a lot of the system is clogged up with the Partygate saga. Uh, and indeed, we're hearing more and more criticism, not just from opposition parties, but from Tory MPs themselves complaining about this paralysis at the heart of government. And finally, over to you, Natalia, in Moscow. Has this Partygate row cut through? I don't know. Are you aware of it? I mean, it's obviously you read it in your newspaper and the Telegraph each day, but have the issues for Boris Johnson's leadership, are they, are they being played out in Moscow and maybe used by the Kremlin to take advantage from? Well, it was definitely featured on the news programs at at the time when the news broke. I would say that um, the thing that really did play in Russian media and Ukrainian media as well is um, 
the arms supplies because Ukraine has been, uh, Ukraine for years has been asking the West for weapons, saying that it is de- it's, it's, it's simply outgunned by Moscow. And in case there is an escalation, it would find itself completely helpless. So uh, uh, the shipments of uh, British anti-tank missiles, that was definitely something that featured quite heavily on news programs. Do you feel in Moscow that Russia can be walked back from this? Or does it feel a sad and tragic inevitability behind the, the, the march towards a, de- a conflict of some sort? I definitely don't feel that it's, it's uh, inevitable. And things that give me hope, so to speak, is something that we've just talked about, is the fact that Russian TV propaganda has not been primed to whip up the war frenzy here. And obviously, on the other hand, it's been quite a while since Putin cared about the domestic reactions. And uh, if he decides to de-escalate, if he decides to leave it as it is, or choose whatever non-military path there is for him to choose, I, I think it's, that's something that, he, that can be done. Natalia Vasilyeva, the Telegraph's correspondent in Moscow, and of course Lucy Fisher, our own deputy producer here in London. Thank you both for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And for more of Natalia's and Lucy's expert analysis, why not sign up to be a Telegraph subscriber? Please go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash chopper and get your first month's subscription completely free of charge. Go on, you know you want to. Well, that's your lot now, listeners. I hope you've had your cake and eaten it. I'd love to get your thoughts on some of the subjects we've covered today. You can email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me, we're at chopperspodcast. Thanks to my guests, Sir John Redwood, Connor Burns, Natalia Vasilyeva and, of course, Lucy Fisher. Thanks to my producers, Giles Gear, Louisa Wells and Theodora Ludis. And of course, as ever, thank you to you for listening. We really do appreciate it here at Podcast Towers. If you're twiddling your thumbs, waiting for Sue Gray's report to drop, why not keep up to date with everything happening in Westminster by signing up to my daily newsletter. It's called Chopper's Politics, and it goes straight to your inbox every weekday. The link to sign up to it is in the show notes to this episode. And of course, keep an eye out for my Peterbread Diary column on the website every Friday at 7pm. And, of course, in Saturday's newspaper. And finally, as Tory MPs weigh up this weekend, whether to call time on Boris Johnson's leadership, I leave you with advice from a senior Tory MP who on Thursday told me the problem with political beheadings is that you leave entrails everywhere. On that note, please buy a copy of the paper if you can. You won't regret it. But, of course, as ever, until next time, cheerio! 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.